If you would turn in your Bibles to the introduction to 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, we'll be looking at verses uh, 1 through 9, uh, Lord willing, this evening. Um, I've been encouraged in many ways today just to uh, get some more time with you and uh, to be able to worship together. I was encouraged by this morning and, and seeing you all here. I was encouraged by um, our membership class uh, this, this morning. Uh, I was making the comment that I didn't feel like we really uh, could promote that class uh, the way that we, I would like to have. Uh, now, you might say, well, man, you had a lot to say about Membership Matters class, and I understand that. But um, just with the holidays, with uh, not having church last Sunday, I'm like, I just don't know who's going to be in this room, who's going to uh, show up. We had, I think, 17 people signed up, but uh, God brought us a whole lot more than that. So just a reminder, it's, this is God's work, and this is what he's doing. Um, we can try to promote in whatever way we want, but really, God's the one who's going to provide the growth. And uh, 1 Corinthians has things to say about that uh, in 1 Corinthians 3. God is the one all along the way who provides the growth. And uh, who's Paul? Actually, uh, Paul doesn't say it that way. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and uh, verse 5, I think it is. He says, uh, look there in your Bibles, 3.5. What is Apollos? What is Paul? He uses a neuter interrogative there that is not to, uh, to question whether or not they were human beings or not. If you were to walk into this room and I would ask, what is that? Uh, it probably wouldn't be too encouraging to you. Uh, but in this text, Paul asks, what is Paul and what is Apollos to draw attention away from human personalities? And he actually answers that in the very next word in the text. Servants. They're servants. Uh, ministry is never about human personalities. It is about God, the Father, who provides the growth. And that's why, as you would keep reading in 3, 5 through 9, you would see the word God five times. God, God, God is the one who will provide any sort of growth. And so, it's a good reminder to me this morning of what uh, the Lord would do and... Uh, so we're rejoicing in that here. Um, as we look at the introduction, um, I, I, in a moment of transparency, I have to say that uh, preaching on introductions to books is never really my favorite thing to do. Um, you know, I've heard uh, people preach on introductions and, and really take like every word and do a word study, and then you know the first three verses take three sermons or something like that, and the author's telling you, or the preacher's telling you everything he knows about grace and peace and hope and you know, and the Corinthians, and the Apostle, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I just kind of like to get right into it. And so, uh, preaching on this has never really been my favorite part, but what I'd like to do this evening is I would like to uh, look at the first nine verses in the introduction that's here. I would like to survey it. I have three simple points uh, this evening. And then, after we look at the text and examine what this text means... Then I want to ask another question. We're going to ask the question, why? Why does Paul start this way in 1 Corinthians? Okay, and so as we dig into the text, we'll first answer the question, what is he saying? And I think he basically makes three arguments in verses 1 through 9. And uh, Paul is, 
getting ready to write a letter that has uh, a lot of hard things in it. There are many problems that he's going to have to address. There are are questions, of course, he's going to have to answer. But in um, introducing the letter, um, he, he really starts by preparing them to receive it. Uh, So my three points, point number one is, or letter A, the prelude to Paul's appeals in the letter, verses one through three. The prelude to the appeals that he's going to make in the letter. Look at verse one. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In these verses, Paul will tell you, uh, he'll give you some information about the authors of the epistle, those who are receiving it, and then he he makes a greeting uh, to the people. And so, Uh, As we look at the authors, we see that Paul, of course, identifies himself as an author, but he also attributes the letter to a brother by the name of Sosthenes. Okay, And whoever Sosthenes is, he must have been pretty well known to the church at Corinth, for Paul doesn't really say much about him other than he assisted Paul in writing 1 Corinthians. Now, there is a man named Sosthenes mentioned in Acts 18 from the church plant visit that Paul made to Corinth. And so I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles for a moment. Keep your finger here. Turn over to Acts 18. And I want to look at verses 12 through 17 just to uh, kind of uh, let you make you aware of this ruler of the synagogue by the name of Sosthenes. Acts 18. And verse 12, it says, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Remember, he's in Corinth here. Saying, This man, Paul, is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio, who's a, a governor, proconsul of Corinth, said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and uh, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Uh, Here we we find out about a man uh, by the name of Sosthenes. He was a ruler of the Jewish synagogue. And although the text doesn't clearly demonstrate it, it must be that he had some sort of affinity for Paul and his gospel. Earlier in the text, there's a man who is ruling the synagogue who's saved. His name is Crispus. Okay, you could read this in the earlier parts of Acts chapter 18. Crispus was a ruler of the synagogue, and he was saved. That is certain in the text. Questions related to Sosthenes is, well, who's this? Is this another ruler of the synagogue? Is this another name for Crispus? We don't know for sure. But for some reason, the Jews, who had a problem with Paul the apostle in the synagogue, decided to beat Sosthenes 
the ruler of the synagogue. And so I, it's, it's my opinion that this might just be the same Sosthenes that co-writes um, 1 Corinthians with Paul the Apostle. And if this is the same Sosthenes, um, which, by the way, Sosthenes was not a, like an extremely common name in the first century. If this is the same Sosthenes, he was then uh, converted and perhaps had to leave uh, Corinth and go to Ephesus with Paul when he wrote this letter. Okay? So you've got these, these two authors. You've got Paul and Sosthenes joining him in writing. Later on in the book, at the end of the epistle, Paul says, I'm writing this greeting with my own hand. It may be that Sosthenes was the one who actually sat down and wrote out Paul's words uh, for the, the original text of 1 Corinthians. That's who the authors are, Paul and Sosthenes. Uh, he, then, if you go back to 1 Corinthians, he says he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth, God's church in Corinth. And uh, he describes this church as uh, those who are with all those in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's Paul's writing to the churches of Corinth, the church at Corinth. He reminds them of God's universal work that he is doing in the multiple cities that he's appealing to. And he's actually going to remind this divided church of God's universal work uh, repeatedly in 1 Corinthians. So you got the, the authors, Paul and Sosthenes, to the churches of God in Corinth, along with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. Then you have Paul's greeting, grace and peace to you. And of course, you could spend a lot of time uh, talking about Paul's typical greeting of grace and peace to the church, but I would just say that these two words do truly capture or summarize the whole of the Christian experience. God's grace, Paul wishes to them, and his peace as well. That's what I call the prelude to his appeal, verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 7, I give the, the heading, the basis of the appeals that Paul will make throughout the letter. The basis. Uh, and here he is going to remind us of two basic ideas. Look at uh, verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so there are two ideas that Paul expresses here as the basis for the appeals that he's going to make in the letter. Uh, the first idea is uh, Paul is remembering or revealing their past heritage in verses 4 through 6. In particular, he will draw their attention to all of the different ways that God had demonstrated grace to the Corinthian believers uh, throughout uh, their early experience as believers. He specifically says that God has graced the Corinthians in all logos, in, in all word gifts, and in all gifts of knowledge. Now, one of the interesting things that you could study this week if, if you really wanted to dig in a little bit deeper here would be to study the words in, in the ESV. They're translated in all speech, and in all knowledge. Because what Paul is saying, he's saying, 
Uh, whatever all speech and all knowledge mean, he's, he's basically saying God has in the past gifted you in these two categories or ways, uh, in all speech sort of gifts and in all knowledge. And um, I think that there could perhaps be a little bit something else uh, going on in the epistle that is perhaps behind the scene, uh, whether we recognize it or not. And that is, um, I think that probably or, or perhaps that one of the things that may be occurring in the church of Corinth is that the church is being divided up following different leaders. Uh, that is obvious, but that maybe one of the reasons they're dividing up in different groups is that they're following people on the basis of whether they are gifted in these sort of things, speech or knowledge. Uh, and in particular, we, we don't have time perhaps to go back to the book of Acts, but I would suggest that if you went back to the book of Acts, it may be that some within the Corinthian church were following especially a, a man by the name of Apollos because he was gifted in word gifts and in knowledge. Uh, you could write down the reference, uh, Acts 18, verses 24 through 19, 1, to see what Luke says about Apollos. Apollos was an eloquent man. He was gifted in the Scriptures. He was competent with the Scriptures. And uh, one of the things that I think perhaps uh, could be the case or going on is that some within the church were, were being drawn to Apollos primarily because of his good preaching and teaching of the Scripture. And so uh, the Apollos group that we'll talk about next week, maybe some were drawn to him because he is a good preacher. Whereas Paul the Apostle, remember what Paul says about his preaching in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? I look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's see the sort of uh, logos or words that Paul used. 2 and verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty words or speech. Same, same word he's using in chapter 1, or wisdom. 2 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How does Paul describe his own preaching in Corinth? He says, when I came, I came in weakness, fear, and much trembling. And my preaching was not with eloquent words of man's wisdom. Matter of fact, in the second epistle to the Corinthians in in chapter 10 and verse 10, how does he describe his speech there? Or how do some of the Corinthians consider Paul's public speaking? 2 Corinthians 10.10 10. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is what? Weak, and his speech, his logos, his word, is what? Of no account. At least some within the Corinthian church, if they were to evaluate the preaching of Paul the Apostle, they would say, if you want to talk about his public speaking, don't even give account to what he has to say. It's of no account. And so one of the things I want to suggest to you is that it is perhaps possible that some of the controversy in Corinth 
Some of the division occurring behind Apollos or Paul may have had to do with giftedness in the word, in in word gifts or in uh, knowledge. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 4. Here, Paul rightfully thanks God that the Corinthians have been enriched in logos, in speech or word. This is probably a reference to eloquence. It is within this category of gifts, word gifts, that most uh, commentators say gifts like tongues and prophecy fall. And so as Paul is beginning his letter to the uh, Corinthians, he says, I can say this, God has gifted you in all of these sort of word gifts. He also says that they're gifted in knowledge. The word knowledge speaks of insight. Insight. I believe it involves an accurate perception of life or of doctrine. One of the interesting things I want to suggest to you, and you can explore this week, is I think that the word knowledge in 1 Corinthians can be used not only of the kind of the general idea of knowledge or insight into something, but that in places in the book, it's also used to describe the spiritual gift of knowledge or a, a spiritual gift of knowledge. Okay, and I'll give you a few places to look. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 8 with me. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 8. He says, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. While we do not talk much about a spiritual gift of knowledge as being uh, in, in the church today, I think Paul, at times in the book, is describing a specific gift of spiritual knowledge that he would give to believers, that God would give to believers through the Spirit that would enable them to have the right perception of doctrine, truth. There are other texts as well. I think you could see this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 2. In this love chapter, he says, and I have, uh, and, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. There as well, it could be that he's describing a particular gift of knowledge. Or 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? What I'm suggesting here is that uh, what Paul is giving as an, a basis for the appeals that he's going to make in the letter is he's, he starts out this way. He says, I want to recognize something about you. I want to recognize that in the past, God has gifted you in many ways. He has gifted you with gifts relating to speaking, and he's gifted you in the area of knowledge, perhaps even a spiritual gift of knowledge. And so uh, it is obvious that the Corinthian church is gifted. That is not their problem. The problem with many of them, or some of them, though, is that they marveled and boasted in the gifts or the human beings 
who use the gifts in the church instead of boasting in the giver of the gifts. And so as Paul starts out this epistle, he reminds them over and over again of the grace of God. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment, and as you look in verses 4 through 7, just kind of comb through there and see all of the language related to grace. In verse verse 4, he's talking about the grace of God and the fact then that God has given to them certain things. He talks about the fact that they've been enriched in all uh, logos and gnosis. And then uh, he describes a little bit later on that they're not lacking in any gift. It's interesting, even the word for gift here in the text is, is not the word that we would typically translate as a spiritual gift, but it shares the same root as grace. And so as Paul is writing this introduction, as he's setting out and getting ready to give them some very difficult appeals over and over again in the letter, he returns to the idea of God's grace. He reminds them of all of the ways that God has blessed them and helped them. And then in verse 7, I call this, uh, he reflects also on present realities. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one one of the best things that we can do in Bible study is to stop and ask sometimes, how is one particular phrase or verse related to another? And so let me give you a little bit of homework here in your pew, in your chair. How is verse 7 related to verse 6? How is verse 7 related to verse 6? In my opinion, verse 7 is the result of verse 6. Perhaps the results of verses 5 and 6. So what he's saying is the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you with the result that you are now, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Again, Paul reminds them or talks about the gifts that have been given to them and how he is thankful that they don't lack in any area of giftedness as a church. Now, this is kind of ironic, isn't it? Uh, Because a little bit later on, in verses 12 through 14, or chapters 12 through 14, he's going to have some pretty difficult things to say about the way that they were approaching spiritual gifts. But I like to suggest that, you know, the problem with the Corinthian church does not have to do, deal with uh, the fact that uh, they are lacking in spiritual gifts. Their problem uh, is that they lack in spiritual fruit. And that's why he will draw their attention to love in chapter 13. It's true that they're lacking in no area of giftedness. And so Paul starts here in this good approach. And so as we're surveying the chapter, what have we seen so far? The prelude to his appeals. He introduces the author, the recipients. The basis for some of the appeals he's going to make in the letter. God has gifted you in many ways in the past. So that presently you're not lacking in any area of spiritual giftedness. And then uh, in verses 8, what I like to call the outcomes of his appeals in the letter. In verse 8, 
you see Paul's confidence concerning the Corinthian believers. Look down in your Bible at verse 8. He says, Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Here Paul is confident that the Corinthians will be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's actually confident here. He says, that, he says they will be verified or proven in the future. Because I didn't uh, really hit this very clearly as we were going through here, but he uses the same verb in verse 8, who will sustain you, that is translated in verse 6 as was confirmed among you. Okay, in verse 6, although I skipped it briefly, I didn't intend to do that. You see, Paul says, in the past, the witness of Christ was confirmed or verified among you. And now, as he draws our attention to the future, he says, not only as Christ's testimony was confirmed among you, so you will be confirmed. You will be confirmed. Who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. I love that that word guiltless in verse 8. This word is not used very much in the New Testament. It can be translated blameless or irreproachable. It's used twice in the pastoral epistles, and there it's translated beyond or above reproach. And so what I think Paul is doing in verse 8 is he's saying, as a result of Christ's death and resurrection on your behalf, believers will be blameless or irreproachable before God. Listen, no person will be able to bring an accusation against you the future day of judgment. And so Paul, I mean, he's writing this letter. I hope you remember some of the problems I talked about this morning. In verse 8, he starts on this very positive message that he is confident that in the end, they will be blameless. No one will have a false word against them in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then I love verse 9. How, how is verse 9 related to verse 8? Again, in our private time with the Lord, sometimes it's good to actually slow down and look at these phrases and see how they're related to each other. If I were to ask you, how is verse 9 related to verse 8? The connection is not necessarily grammatical. But I would suggest that uh, verse 9 is the reason, the ground or the basis for Paul's confidence in the Corinthian believers. Okay, so Paul is confident that in the end, the the Corinthian Christians will be verified or confirmed to be blameless. How in the world could he be confident like that? On what ground or what, what basis, what reason would he have for believing that? The faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. The basis for their position as saints is simply found in God. His character His faithfulness is insurance for the Corinthian believers. Conformity one day to the image of Jesus Christ and their being presented blameless before the Lord. And so that's the first question I wanted to answer. I think that's what's going on in this text. That's what Paul is saying in the intro. Um, the, The guaranteed outcome of his appeals in the letter will be 
you will one day be presented as believers blameless the day of the Lord, and I can be confident of that because God is faithful. He will do this. Reminds me of another passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You might write that down too, which where, where Paul is telling the Thessalonians they need to be holy, sanctified, body, soul, and spirit. How is this possible? Well, God's faithful. God will do this. But now I want to ask you the question, why? Why does Paul start this way in 1 Corinthians? If you were writing a letter with all these problems, how would you start it? Uh, Paul gives a lengthy introduction here, and he adds some things that perhaps aren't in other epistles. And so I want to ask you, why does he open the letter this way? And I, I want to try to answer it. As I've done research in my own research, and then looking also in, in some of the things that have been written in this text, I, there, there are different reasons that people suggest for why Paul starts this way. And I'll give a few of those to you now. I, I think Paul might start on such uh, good ground with them because he is, a, he is establishing goodwill for the strong admonitions that he is going to make later in the epistle. Okay, so he's got some hard things to say, and it'll start right in verse 10, 11. I got this like, desire for you to be perfectly united in mind and judgment, but Chloe's people told me you're dividing up. So he gets right to it. But before that, to establish goodwill for the admonitions he's going to make, he starts out in this way. The other thing I think that is true is that uh, he is also introducing topics of conversation that he's going to further address in the letter. There are all sorts of vocabulary and words that he uses here in the intro to the epistle that he will pick up on and deal with later. Things like the word, word, the word knowledge, spiritual gifts, the coming of the Lord, and the universal work of God. He's going to have a lot of things to say about some of the topics that he weaves into the introduction. And so Paul starts in this way. Of course, under the uh, inspiration of the Spirit, I think, to establish goodwill and to introduce topics of conversation that he'll appeal to later. But the third and final reason, I think, is perhaps the best. And that is, Paul is motivating the Corinthians on the basis of God's faithfulness to them. By introducing the concept that God is faithful to present the Corinthians blameless before the Lord in the day of judgment, Paul is appealing to the graciousness of our God as a means of motivating this divided, problematic church to serve God and to love him and make the decisions that they need to make in their church. I was uh, reading in a book on grace and the law, written by Stephen Westerholm. And he describes two hypothetical marriages. He may have had two marriages in mind, but he used two names uh, for uh, the spouses here that, of course, are not true. But I want you to just listen to a little bit of what Westerholm says. And what he's talking about is the difference between motivating people on the basis of grace or motivating them on the basis of law. Listen to what he says. He says, We may take Jack's delight in pleasing Jill, his wife, as a sign of their happy marriage. 
Not so Dan's nervous attempts to win Dana's favor. He said, both Jack and Dan may buy chocolate for their spouses. Jack, however, does so joyfully and almost without reflection, assured of Jill's love and goodwill toward him. Dan, on the other hand, fearful lest his peace offering be dismissed with contempt, sweats oceans as he ponders what box of chocolates to purchase, and when and with what words to present it to his wife. Jack feels no compulsion to be kind, though he is so. How else would he treat the woman that he loves? Dan's acts of would-be kindness carry little conviction. He sees no other way to gain his wife's approval, yet he doubts the outcome, whatever he does. I love that analogy of the two marriages because it's describing, even within marriage, the fact that we can do the same sort of things for our spouse, but we can be motivated in different ways. And in the Christian life, I think it's also true. We can try to motivate others, motivate our children on the basis of law. Listen, here are the rules. Here are all of the things that you need to obey and you need to do. I mean, Paul could have written this epistle and in the intro says, okay, here are all of the commands. Let me just give you like 47 of them. He could have motivated them on the basis of fear or law, but instead, what does he do at the beginning of the epistle? He motivates the Corinthians on the basis of God's faithfulness. I know in the end, you will be confirmed blameless in the day of the Lord, and I can have confidence because God is faithful who has called you into the fellowship of his son. And I want to encourage all of us as we look at the way Paul starts this letter to also strive to motivate people around us and the ones that we love on the basis of of God's faithfulness and his grace. Listen, I could uh, attempt to get my children to conform to standards and rules and regulations of the house. And uh, knowing them, they would. Or I can appeal to God and his faithfulness and his graciousness to them and say, you know what? On the basis of what God has done for you and the way that he's changed you, don't you think you can serve him and love him. I think the more we understand the embrace of God and his graciousness and his faithfulness to us, the more it will draw us as New Testament believers to embrace him back. Some people are nervous, aren't they? The more you talk about grace, the more believers are going to abuse it. I think the exact opposite is true, and Paul understands that. It says he's writing to the Corinthian believers He reminds them of God's faithfulness to them so that they might be willing to make some of the changes that are necessary. Might we also be motivated by God's grace and motivate others with it as well? Let's pray to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the intro to this epistle. Uh, Lord, as we have simply surveyed its content It's very easy to see Paul's emphasis on grace. Right in the greeting, it says grace and peace to you. He talks in verses 4 through 7 of the grace of God and how you had given multiple things to the Corinthian church and how you enriched them in all wisdom, in all word, in all knowledge. And then he describes the gifts, the grace gifts that you had given. And he ends by saying God is faithful. 
Lord, may your graciousness and your faithfulness to us be a means of encouraging us to serve you. Lord, as we would, would appeal to those that we love as well to obey and to conform to what the Scriptures say, may we be sensitive. May we be quick to motivate people on the basis of your grace as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.